Hello, I'm Seth M. Siegel. Welcome to the Let There Be Water podcast, a conversation featuring ideas and solutions to some of the world's most pressing water issues. Our guest is Karen Ross, California's Secretary of Food and Agriculture since 2011. After growing up on a Nebraska farm, she began working in Washington, D.C. for a U.S. Senator, focusing her efforts on agriculture, and then later became a senior aide to Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. With agricultural use of water a hot topic in California and around the world, we are delighted to have Karen Ross with us for the Let There Be Water podcast. Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, before we get into some of the harder questions, perhaps mm-hmm. give us an overview of California agriculture itself, the nature of the industry, its relevance to the U.S., and frankly, its relevance to the world at large. That's great. Well, California agriculture really is an asset for California because we've been blessed with the natural resources and this wonderful Mediterranean climate. We're responsible for over 50% of the fruits, vegetables, and tree nuts that are grown in this country. And we have very innovative farmers. Our farm gate value even in 2014, which at that time was the third year of a drought, grew to a record $54 billion in farm gate value. So we're very proud of our ag industry. They've never stood still. They're always seeking out the next best technology and the application of science to be the best farmers they can be. And some of the crops that California is famous for, it's not the commodity crop that we think of as the heartland of America. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about it. What California is famous for? We are famous for our specialty crops, especially our grapes, our almonds, our walnuts, pistachios, citrus, the leafy greens. If someone in America had a salad at lunch today, there's better than a 50-50 chance that most of those ingredients were grown somewhere in California. We grow everything from A to Z in California, but we're especially known for the specialty crops, and we're able to do that because of the climate that we have here the water infrastructure that we have here, and the leading universities that have partnered with our farmers to make sure we're using the best possible farming techniques. Although California is, of course, only one of 50 states, California provides a disproportionate amount of the nation's agriculture as a percentage of what we eat. It's not just the high-value crops. That's correct. So what you see in the produce section is primarily what we excel at here in California. For whatever reason, California stopped being in the agriculture business. It wouldn't just be an economic problem for farmers. It would also be a nutritional crisis for America and probably for a good part of the world as well. Because of our increasing market demand, there's much more dependence upon the kinds of crop that we have here. Going beyond the fresh produce aisle, we grow over 95% of the processing tomatoes, which translates to a lot of pizzas and pasta sauces. We're 20% of the milk production, and we also are the fifth largest producer of cattle. So the whole dinner plate has something from California, but our specialty are those crops that you find in the produce aisle. I would not be lying if I told you suddenly I'm hungry. <laughs> well, and did I say that we're the world's fourth largest wine producer? So enjoying that dinner with a nice glass of California wine is something that, if that's your thing, I would encourage you to give it a try. <laughs> I don't know if I should tell the Let There Be Water podcast listeners, but it is one of my things. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about now water. This extraordinary produce, it requires a lot of water. Yes. So, Talk All growing that. things take water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, growing things right. take water. Right. So talk mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. So the Department of Water Resources has calculated that of the complete water budget that's available for all uses, 
a meaning gap that falls from the skies and is captured for environmental uses, industrial and residential uses, and agricultural uses. Agriculture is a little less than 50%. If you look at our developed water supply, it's over 70%. So it takes a lot of water to grow living creatures, meaning our livestock sector, as well as all those plants that we grow for our consumers. And so what you're really saying is, if you look at all of the water, some of which flows in our rivers, mm-hmm. and then you extract that water and not count mm-hmm. that water, just the water that we're really using, whether it's for industry or for showers or for watering lawns in famous Beverly Hills, then the agricultural part of that pie would be a little more than 70% or between 70 and 80%. Is that, is that right? Yes, of the developed water. That's correct. Now, water comes in lots of different forms. Two major categories we tend to think of what water in is our groundwater and our surface water. And mm-hmm. California is obviously blessed with both of those. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the water sources and water infrastructure of California, sure. if you would. California, for a lot of people who are not familiar with our geography, two-thirds of our water supply is in the very northern part of the state, but two-thirds of the water uses are in the southern part of the state. And that's why we're so dependent on the canal system that we have to be able to move that water around. Our most efficient water storage is actually our Sierra snowpack, and that's been one of the really harsh impacts of our four-year drought is the lack of snowpack. It's a very efficient way of storing water and then having it melt in May, June, and July to feed our reservoirs and then be transferred to our canal system. Now, most of America who knows about California water may have gotten it from a very scary episode of 60 Minutes where we learned about the aquifers, the Mm -hmm. underground water storage facilities. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a sort of arms race between farmers to drill deeper and deeper. Talk Mm -hmm. talk about, if you would, the phenomenon of using up of our aquifers and how we get them recharged. It has happened in the last few years because of the extended nature and the severity of the drought combined with ongoing changes in water allocations that have been driven by regulatory changes, port opinions, and biological opinions. Less of the surface water was available to farmers who were part of a contract system going back for decades for the amount of water that they could count on to grow their crops. And as we lost surface water allocations, we became ever more dependent upon groundwater pumping. So that we have seen in normal years as little as 30% reliance on groundwater pumping. Um, Our colleagues at the University of California have estimated that 60% of our water use was coming from our groundwater aquifers. And that's an extraordinarily high number. It is not sustainable if we continue to pump at those kinds of rates. We must protect our groundwater. If we keep going at the rate that we're going of abstracting water out of the aquifers, how many years do we actually have left before we face a crisis, we reach an environmental tipping point? That's a good question. And there are people in academia that have taken a look at this. There are still significant, very significant stores of groundwater. But the point is that if we don't do something today, every year we're putting ourselves into a bigger deficit. And that is not a wise thing to do for the future generations that will follow us in this beautiful state. Plus, in some parts of California around the aquifers, we're facing early stage subsidence problems where cracking of soil has some impact on built infrastructure like roads or power lines or home foundations. It's interesting to note that that in our history, one of the reasons the state and federal water projects were pursued was because of subsidence issues that were occurring 50, 60, and 70 years ago. Well, it's amazing how uh, 
the destruction of existing infrastructure can concentrate the minds of all kinds of people. <laughs> it is indeed. I'd like to switch gears to something that I think California might be a model for the world in a different way. And mm-hmm. that is in the recent year or so of, of the gathering drought, mm-hmm. we've seen a, a demonization of farmers and particularly nut growers like almonds mm-hmm. and pistachios mm-hmm. as bad guys. And I have a sense that this might be a model, a bad model, but a model nonetheless that others around the world might be using as a way of pointing a finger at farmers, even though historically we think of farmers in heroic terms. For the Mm -hmm. first time I can recall, farmers are now being seen as bad guys. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what, for me as an outsider living in a a high-rise apartment building in Manhattan, I, I feel it with pain this sense of antagonism that you hear between farmers and environmentalists and city people. That's a really interesting, deep sociological phenomena for us to spend hours talking about. And it's something actually that breaks my heart because I feel that in times like this with good leaders like we have in Governor Brown, it's most important for us all to remember that we're in this together. It's easy to point fingers and demonize something else. We all need to have a healthy, clean environment. And so we each have a role to play by learning to conserve more. We can learn a great deal from the people of Israel or the people of Australia and what their per capita use is and as being as efficient as possible in how they use water. There's a lot that we can do and so much we can learn from other countries have been in this place. I'm especially intrigued with the possibilities of how we can manufacture more water by capturing stormwater and treating recycled water for additional uses. I'd like to share with you something that happened recently. I was going down my elevator in my apartment building in Manhattan when a very friendly neighbor, uh, knowing uh, that uh, I'm involved with water issues, told me very proudly that she has made a vow that she will never again eat an almond. And I said to her, no, no, no. No, no, you've gone the wrong way on this. But I really didn't have a better answer for her. Mm-hmm. Tell me what I should say to her and tell me what you'd like to say to all those many people who have somehow or other come to conclude that by not eating almonds, they are going to save the earth. Well, um, I, I have said from the beginning that farmers grow food for people. And we have, by becoming so efficient as farmers, allowed millions and millions of Americans and other citizens of of the globe to not have to worry about sourcing their food, that we've made it efficiently, effectively, and affordably available, that very high quality, um, and and with a lot of nutrition packed into it. So the ultimate user of the water um, is actually the person who's consuming that food, and stopping eating um, probably is not going to be a a wish-for result on the part of the consumer who wants to stop eating those foods. Everything that we do as human beings has consequences. Um, The number of computer chips that are manufactured overseas and come back to us for all of our handheld technology uses water from someplace else. But it is important that we develop a consciousness of how water is used, how my personal choices impact other resources, and that we just are very focused on the most efficient and effective use of water in our personal life and in our business life. But at the end of the day, our farmers are very committed to having a healthy environment to produce a healthy crop for consumers here and around the world. And I I really hope that she'll reconsider her choice of 
almonds because California is one of the few places that grows them in the world, and they're really quite good for her. <laughs> well, I gave her I gave her a bag of almonds as a uh, gift. I hope she didn't think it was a joke or a provocation. <laughs> <laughs> to be serious for a moment, though, as you look over the horizon, what gives you a sense of optimism? What is it that we can think of as being good news that's coming? I have to tell you, and after reading your book and visiting with people from Israel and other countries, yeah, and by the way, I enjoyed your book. I had a chance to read it before I met you, and I'm intrigued and looking forward to my first trip to Israel to see for myself on the ground what they're doing. I'm especially excited about the prospects of smaller-scale desal and treatment units that could be solar-powered and used in interior California to treat our brackish water. We definitely need to scale up that technology We've got lots of smart people who are very dedicated working on this, and I'm not saying it's easy to be able to bring people together to make the kinds of hard decisions that will be necessary to restore balance to our groundwater systems, but I have great confidence that with the good scientific minds that we have in the state that we'll be able to achieve the goals. Before we break, do you have anything else you'd like to share with us? Let there be water. Well, thank you. Yes, let there be water. Our guest today is Karen Ross, the California Secretary of Food and Agriculture. This has been a delight, and I hope we'll have a chance to have you back again soon, maybe after a lot of rainfall in California. This edition of the Let There Be Water podcast was directed by Jamie Black and edited by Morel Frankel, with production assistance by Alexander Lindroth and creative input from Krasimir Galabov. Thank you for listening.